And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last breath. And this curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last breath, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse number 42, and we'll finish this chapter out. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took notice the language here, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, Joseph saw where he was laid. One more time, let's just go before the Lord and ask him to bless our remainder of our time together. So God, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And we thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to collectively gather together under one name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Let us have ears to hear eyes to see, a heart to receive, and hands and feet to go and do, Lord, that we would all collectively say with one voice in unison, look how glorious our King Jesus is this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, if you notice, it's a little dark in here, and this doesn't have anything to do with uh, this particular passage beginning that it darkness fell upon the land. Uh, apparently, somebody didn't pay their bills, and they, we can't figure out how to uh, change fluorescent lights. There's a few terms that I kind of want to just go through with you, uh, if I can. Uh, these, are, these, are, these are kind of deep theological words that we like to use, and we, we, we want us all to have the same understanding of when we think about the cross, when we think about the death of Jesus, I think about some of these terms. Now, before I get into that, let me, let me share a little story about this uh, and the reason why I'm pretty, I'm, I'm kind of adamant about not forsaking words uh, that relate to the death and that relate to the gospel of Jesus. 
When I was in my 20s, I was a worship pastor. Uh, well, not a worship pastor. I was, I was playing keys at, at a church. And this church was new. It was growing. It was thriving. And, and I remember, like, after we had been there for a little while, the pastor kind of gathered all of us together. Uh, and we, we met in his living room. And, and he began to explain, like, you know, this is the type of church we're going to be. We're going to avoid words like um, propitiation. We're going to avoid wor- words like anointing and and he just listed off like a bunch of words and he said because I don't want to ostracize people and I want to make sure we're very welcoming and we're in this kind of this and maybe you've heard this this kind of terminology this seeker sensitive uh type of church and it wasn't shortly after that I was like this is all right I'm out of here because because the reality of it is is when we explore and when we see these these rich theological words that I'm about to kind of give to us then it then it just kind of it means something to know these words. When I say propitiation, that is a weird word, but it's an incredible term for all of us to be able to make sure we understand what that word is. In other words, it is a word to describe what we just read about, that upon the death of Christ, that the wrath of God was satisfied when Jesus breathed his last breath. That is propitiation. When I think of other terms, I think of substitutionary atonement, right? This isn't, every one of us should know this word, substitutionary atonement. I ain't talking about substitute teacher, substitution, see, I can't even say it, substitutionary atonement. That is, all right, and this is glorious news for us, that someone had to take our place because we could never ascend and climb our way up to God. And so what did God do? God came down like us, fully God, fully man, and he substituted. He took our place and he bore the wrath of God. That's the atonement. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. That is glory. This is exactly what we see here in this passage. What we also see here is justification. That God the just, God the holy, that in order for us to go before a just and holy God, justification had to take place. That Jesus would substitute, take our place, and then, and then upon, receive, upon believing in Christ, we are justified. By grace through faith, we are justified. And as they used to tell us in the, in the Baptist church, it's just as if I've never done anything. And, and that, so we stand before a just and holy God, justified, free, pardoned, forgiven. How? By what we just read about. Christ breathing, Christ, his sacrifice on the cross. I think about Reconciliation. I think about him being the mediator between us and God. That because of this huge chasm that stood between us, that the bridge has been broken down because of sin. That Christ steps in as the bridge and reconciles and brings us back to us being before our God in his presence. Now when I think about this passage, I think of a few things that stand out before me. I think of darkness I think of Jesus making this loud cry. I think of the curtain being torn. And also think about, oh, Joseph in this story. 
So I want us to look at those four things, and then I'll, I'll ask a couple questions, and I'll be out of your way this morning so you can go dance in the rain uh, some more. First time since I've lived here, it, I stood outside. I was like, it, it feels like Georgia out here. I, I need this to go away. Okay, I, I left Georgia because escaped the humidity. I wasn't like in California and escaped communism. I left Georgia and escaped uh, humidity. Anyway, I'm digressing. Look at, look at verse 34. <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's go back up and let's look at this one verse. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the land. There's something significant when the Bible talks about darkness. There's, this is a symbol in the Bible of God's displeasure and impending judgment that's about to take place. Anytime you go through the Old Testament, you will see that if you see darkness, then there's about to, something bad is about to happen. So, so think about, and I believe it's in Amos 8, and then let me can I try, to, try to connect some dots for us. If, if you just write down Exodus chapter 10, go to it on your own time this evening and read it. And look at the last section of that chapter, and you find the second to the last plague. And what is it? Darkness. Darkness for three whole days. Now let me read it to you. When the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 10, 21, stretch out your hand toward heavens that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Now, if you'll remember, what is the next plague that takes place? So here we have God's indignation, God's, he, he's, he, ain't, uh, he ain't happy. And so anytime you see when the Lord is not happy, darkness is about to happen and take place. And when you see darkness, you better believe that something bad's about to take place. Because no robber goes out into the broad daylight and goes rob things. You know, everything in the darkness. And so when God brings into the darkness, you know something bad's about to take place. And the next plague that takes place is what? Death. And every household in this time is going to experience death. Every household. You will either experience death of the firstborn. Huh. And somebody's like, oh, that's just a mean old God. He's just a mean old God. But God gave him a way out. That's the justice of God. And then we see the mercy of God that you will either experience the death of a firstborn or you'll heed to the warning of God. And there'll be a death of a lamb. And they'll take the lamb, they'll slit its throat, and they'll take the blood of the lamb, and they'll wipe it over the doorpost of their doors, so that when this death angel comes, it will pass anyone by, that they will not experience the true death. But something had to take the place of their firstborn child, and that was a lamb. And it was the sixth hour, the text says, Jesus has been beaten. Jesus has endured suffering. Jesus is going to endure all of the wrath of God. And he's been doing this for hours upon hours. And then suddenly darkness takes place. And there on the cross is the blood of the lamb 
pouring out for the forgiveness of the sins for anyone who would believe. And Jesus has been telling his disciples that this is what was going to take place, that he would be the blood, he would be the ultimate lamb. Remember when he's up in communion back in chapter 14 when he's talking to his disciples and he tells them, take this bread, this is my body broken for you and take this cup, this is the wine, this is my blood that will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is what he's trying to do. He's not saying that this is my literal blood, this is my literal flesh. Jesus is pointing them to what is about to take place that he will be the lamb that will be that will be the substitutionary atonement in our place so that and don't miss this so that anyone who believes that's the invitation anyone who believes upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved then the blood of the lamb the blood of Christ Jesus will be applied on your heart will be applied on the doorpost of your heart that one day you will not experience the ultimate death of hell but it'll pass you by and you will forever be in eternity with Christ. This is, fan- this is fantastic news. Darkness comes is the impending judgment of God and the judgment of God falls upon Jesus and the wrath of God ensues upon him. Why? Because here we see that he is the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. When John the Baptist sees Jesus in John chapter 1, he looks out in the distance and he sees Jesus. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world. And what was foreshadowing in Exodus is now fulfilled in Mark's gospel. The darkness comes and Jesus becomes the Passover lamb and his blood is applied on our account. And by that blood, we are free and we are pardoned. And then look what Jesus does next. So we see that darkness is covering the land. Next, what we see is a loud cry, a loud cry. You find this in 34 and verse 37. Mark only gives us one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross, and he gives it there to us in verse 34. You can read the others in in Matthew and Luke's and John's account. We see that Jesus here is saying something. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. In fact, if you go through Psalm 22, it is a prophetic vibe going about this very incident. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken me? He's entering into a realm that he has never experienced. The central unity of the Trinity is not being broken here. Yet we have in this interesting story, God forsaking God. He is bearing the penalty and the brunt and the weight of sin in front of the sinless God. All of sin. And isn't that interesting? And suddenly, what, because of what sin does, what does sin do? It separates us from a holy God. 
And in this final moment of Jesus, he feels the forsakenness. I don't know if that's a word. We'll go with it. He feels the abandonment that comes with sin. If you are living in sin, you are abandoned. You are forsaken because that's what sin does to you. It keeps you. It's the barrier that keeps you from a right relationship with God the Father. And so if Jesus has to bear the full weight of the wrath of God, then we see that, that, that he is doing it all. He's enduring the beating. He's enduring the sacrifice. He's been let down and he's been abandoned by his friends. And now we see the fulfill, like the fullness of the wrath of God complete when Jesus says, my God, my God, I feel forsaken by you. Notice he doesn't call him Father. It doesn't say father, father. But it's this raw moment of Jesus because of what sin has done and the result of what sin does to all of us is it keeps you ostracized. It keeps you on the fringes. It keeps you on the margins. And it continues to be that barrier, that wall that's going to separate you from the holy and just and righteous God. And here we see Jesus, he feels it. And then verse 37, Mark doesn't tell us what he says. He just says he cries out with a loud cry and he breathes his last breath. Now we know Luke tells us what he says. Luke tells us in his account, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last breath. In other words, Everything that Jesus needed to experience there on the cross, it was complete. It was done. The, the propitiation. It was finished. Complete. When he gave up his last breath. And I love how Luke says this. When he says, when he goes back to the Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. What is that? That is trust and that is triumph. Trust and triumph. Father, I put my hands, I, I, put, I put my life, I, it's all in, on you now. And it's also triumph. Sin has been defeated. Because Jesus, what he did on the cross. Now it's interesting because crucifixion, Typically, and, and we've, I'm not going to belabor this anymore because we've gone through this a couple weeks about what crucifixion is. But it would typically take about two days if you're being crucified to die. Think about that. Like you, I, I don't know what the worst form of punishment is in our world today. I mean, you, you just think about that. But think about it doing it for 48 hours. And so the Roman soldiers would be like, all right, fine. If they ain't dead in two days, you know what they do? They take their sledgehammers and break their knees. Now, why would they break their knees? Because every now and then they're lifting up and get catching their air, catching their breath. And so when they broke their knees, they weren't able to do that. So they would die of asphyxiation. They would choke. They wouldn't be able to breathe. So it's puzzling because Jesus has just been here for just a few hours and he, and he breathed his last breath, which I, I believe that's, that's a mark of Jesus being in complete control over his death. Like, 
Like, I don't know many people who are just like, you know what, all right, I'm done. Into my hands, I commit yourself. And then they breathe their lives. Breathe. But Jesus does because he's in control of his own, his own death. And it puzzled them, right? Like, look at Pilate. Like, no, go back and check. I don't, he shouldn't be dead already. Go back and check. But, but then we know Joseph takes his corpse, so we know he's dead. And it's interesting what takes place right here. Because of Christ crying out, and you got to know how much anguish and pain in all of this that he's been going through for hours upon hours upon hours, and for him to have the strength to cry out one more time, it, it does something. Because it did something to the centurion guard. Like, I'm just thinking of this manly, burly fella guy. I mean, he's just like ripped and ready to just snap you in two. But Jesus cries out with a loud cry, and it does something to that fella. It shakes him at his core. And he says, truly, this is the Son of God. Now, in my best estimation, Jesus could not have done that last cry. If he, you remember when he, took the, when he was offered the sedative? Let's give him a little wine. Let's give him a little of that anesthesia. You know, let's knock him out so he don't feel something. Now, you know, if you're in pain, I, yeah, I'm not going to speak for you. If I'm in pain, give me the hard stuff. I don't want to feel this. But because Jesus is in control of his death, because he remains control at all times, he was able to cry out. And because he was able to cry out, the centurion guard believed. It's a fascinating thing. Then we have these bystanders, and I'm not going to belabor on these guys uh, long in verse 36. Wait, let's see where their Elijah comes and takes them down. Isn't that like the most superstitious thing that you, they're not from the South, so they didn't sound like that. But isn't that like there's the most ridiculous thing to say? Oh, let's wait and see if something mysterious happens. Now let's wait and see if like, like fire rains down upon the heaven. Let's see like who comes from the skies to rescue him. It's a tragedy. Instead of them being able to see Jesus for who he really is, they're worried about some superstition. They have blurry vision. Jesus right up, like he's right there. They're, they're passing him by. They could see him near. But they're too far-sighted that their vision was so blurry because Jesus was so close that they missed the true identity of Jesus. And instead of them saying truly and joining in the chorus of the centurion guard, they, they just, they're just into their, their superstitions. And then you have the torn curtain. In fact, I heard a preacher call it an incident of divine vandalism. I just thought it was beautiful. I had to write that down. Now the curtain was torn in two. And this is a fascinating thing here. The curtain was not torn from bottom to top. It was torn from top to bottom. Who did it? It was a divine vandalism. God did it. Now, I know like some of you are like, oh, I can, I can tear a curtain. Yeah, maybe if it's, a, if it's from Walmart. You, you know, I mean, not hating on Walmart curtains. They're beautiful, whatever. I don't really know. I don't even care about curtains. Why am I talking? But, but yeah, some of you, like you can't even open up a jar of salsa. Okay? 
All right, let's just read. You got the butter knife banging on it. Well, if I just loosen it up here, I'll get it. You still can't get it up. So don't even say, well, it was just easy. It just kind of faded apart. No, this thing was thick. And if this was the, the big curtain, it could have been at least 80 feet high. You ain't tearing that curtain, okay? Now, I know some of you probably think, well, you don't know how strong I am. Really? You can't do it. The only way and the only reason that this thing could have been torn was God divinely tearing this curtain to pieces. In two, God did this. He, the curtain that guarded us from his presence, he's chastising his son. He's rendered obsolete the sacrificial system. He's opening up a new, a brand new doorway for us to have access to his presence again. Now, there's two things that are significant about the temple curtain being torn. The first thing is that we can't miss this, that this was judgment on the temple. You see, like when Jesus goes into the temple, what does Jesus do? Oh, boy. He get his whip. And you watch him, nay, nay. No, that was stupid. You, he's going he's gonna to go crazy. Right? He takes his way. He turns the table. Like he's like, this is not my father's house. Because the religious people had turned this into like some kind of, tar- some kind of marketplace. And they've, and they've kept out the people from experiencing the presence of God. And God says, not under my watch. In fact, Jesus has been talking about the impending judgment upon the temple. And here we see the beginning of the temple being destroyed. Because we know what happened in 70 AD. Jesus prophesied about it. He told them, watch, when you see these things, when the temple is destroyed, you better run for the hills. Because at that moment, the Roman Empire has infiltrated Jerusalem and they have destroyed the temple So the curtain is about divine access to God, but the curtain is also about this judgment of God. And I'll go back to this. It is also about now we have this access to the presence of God. It's kind of a turning of a new system where the old covenant, where the old way of of how we get to the presence of God, which, which was what? I mean, it's pretty difficult. I mean, you had to be like the elite chosen priest to be the guy with a rope tied around you because, because if you went in there in an unclean way, you're not walking out. They're taking that rope and they're dragging the joker out because he's dead. So how we had access to the direct presence of God was very, very difficult. But look what God did for us through the death of Christ in a symbol to everyone to see, ripped the curtain in two. And now every single one of us has direct access to God. Isn't that great news? Here's what that means. All right. You don't need a bishop. You don't need a prophet. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pope. And you don't even need a pastor. You, you have 
direct access to the presence of the Most High God. And I love this other thought too, because Paul introduces something else about the temple, the curtain being torn. Because what does he say in 1 Corinthians 3.16? Don't you know, and he's talking to the church, that you are the temple? It's a fascinating thing while we kind of overemphasize cathedrals and temples and synagogues and, and even church buildings and chapels. Paul says none of that stuff matters because the presence of the living and holy God is inside all of those who believe. We have access. And it was made way by the death of Christ. One more character in here, and I'm just going to ask a couple questions here. Joseph of Arimathea. This is what I've called before when I've gone through this text in John, the, the undercover Christian. He's, and, and you'd have to go back in John and read some of this in John 12. Um, and not just Joseph, but there were other religious leaders. In fact, in John 12, 42, it says, many even of the authorities believed him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. What Joseph of Arimathea has been dealing with is this whole fear. Well, man, if I, if, if I leave what I've been building my whole life, like that's going to be devastating for me. It's going to be devastating for my family. I can't, I can't come out and, and, and come out and confess that Jesus is the Messiah. I can't do that. Like, you don't know what kind of damage that's going to do to my reputation. You don't know what kind of damage this is going to do to my, to my status and even to my family. This is going to have direct implications to them. Joseph moves from the undercover. So like, I like how Mark puts it. Like, he's, like something's happened in Joseph of Arimathea. Now he doesn't care what the others think about him. In fact, he goes before Pilate and asks for the dead corpse of Jesus himself. And then, you know, that's when Pilate's like, wait a minute, he's, he shouldn't be dead now. It should, it should take longer. And he grants him to take Jesus' body and to go bury it. What happened? What changed in Joseph of Arimathea? What changed in the centurion guard? What changed in you? the death of our Savior. And you know what's also interesting? If you go back and read John's gospel, there's another character that Mark doesn't mention who is with Joseph of Arimathea. You know who it is? Nicodemus. Y'all remember Nicodemus? He's a scared little fella. He ain't gonna be seen with Jesus in the broad daylight. What does he do? He goes out before Jesus and he's struggling, y'all. I mean, he's like, what? This makes no sense. How can I? Well, I got to go back through the birth canal. What am I going to do? That's what he says. I've got to be born again. What does that even mean? And Jesus just lays it out for him. Just believe. Just believe and you'll have eternal life. Something happened also in Nicodemus. I mean, I, I hope we see these two fellows up in heaven. 
I hope I see Nicodemus in him. It's like, what was it like to have that secret conversation? Because John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus is right there with Joseph. And something had to have happened in Nicodemus because he's pouring out at least 75 pounds worth of perfume. That's, that's a lot. You just don't, if Nicodemus isn't believing at this point, something else is wrong with him. Because you don't just pour out that much ointment on someone who is like C.S. Lewis said, is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the savior. Because that's who Jesus is. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's your savior. And I, I have a hard time believing that for Joseph of Arimathea and for Nicodemus that they thought Jesus was a liar. I have a difficult time believing that they thought Jesus was a lunatic. And he, and he comes to him in the darkness. And just a few questions that I think could, could serve as well this morning is, are we in the dark? Are we in the dark with this whole Jesus thing and we're just refusing? And we're kind of like those bystanders, you know? Like some of these bystanders, man, they're just... Pfft. When I'm reading through this, you had the... Remember the bystanders that were just shaking their heads? Mm-hmm. You're the son of God. Come on, come on, get off that cross. And now here they are, instead of now from mocking, mocking Jesus, now they're just in this weird superstitions. Are you in the dark? Have you been brought into the light, the marvelous light of Christ? Because that's what's being presented to us, that God is calling. He is wooing. Like, have you heard the cry of the Savior? Did it penetrate you like I bet it penetrated our boy, the centurion guard? Have you cried out to him and said, God, save me? I believe. What about this whole idea of the curtain? Have you been trying to build your life? Have you been trying to just like, like just, I got to do better. I've got to, you know, get a good job. I've got to get a better spouse because the one I have is just, you know, I can't stand them. And, and I just got to achieve and I've got to live my life for myself because one day I feel like if I do more and if I, if I, if I can be well thought of in my neighborhood, then you know what? God's going to pat me on the back because, you know, like do your best and God will do the rest, right? And that the mantra that we, some of us believe in, but, but God's like, no, I broke the curtain in two so that you wouldn't have to achieve. So that you wouldn't have to climb a ladder. So that you wouldn't have to do any of those things. So that you could just come as you are and experience the love and grace. And then the other question is, are you, are you this closet Christian like Joseph here? I'm just too afraid of what it'll, what it'll cost me if I follow Jesus. We have a ministry in, in Cedar where we, we minister to high school students. It's called Cedar Bible Institute. And it's a great thing. We do it both in uh, Cedar High and Canyon View. And I was teaching this week and the, on the first class with... Uh, the group that I had uh, with the Cedar students, I like Canyon View students better, no offense, uh, to the Cedar students because I know they're in here. Um, 
I was talking to him about the gospel. I like him. I do. Uh, I mean, I kind of have to like at least one of them because he's my son. And so the rest of them, since they're friends, I'm just like, I'll tolerate you. Uh, anyway, I, I, was, I really do love people. Um, Cedar Bible Institute is kind of like this, this alternate to uh, what the LDS people do called seminary. And so it's just a release time. They can come to our building or we just hang out. And then I'm going to talk about Jesus to them. I'm always going to point them to Jesus Christ, okay? So I was talking to them the first day about the gospel and I was talking about how the gospel is good news about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's for the salvation of God's people. And how the gospel stands in contrast of every man's attempt to become righteous in his own eyes. And how the only way out for us was for a work to be done. And it couldn't be by our works. But it would have to be by the work of Christ. And that's, that's good news. Because I didn't have to go through what Jesus had to go through. It's good news because I was dead and now I'm alive. It's good news because Colossians would say in chapter 2 that I was alienated, hostile. And then God would pick me up and save me. So it's, that's good news. And that's the encompassing uh, uh, story that we just read. And so we have a young lady in, in our our first CBI, who was uh, a, a part of, I'm going to be very careful what I say here, it was a part of a, a well-known established religion in the state of Utah. And over the summer, <clears throat> over the summer, her dad, her dad came to the knowledge of the true and living Christ. And likewise, she began to follow Jesus. And she said that she raised her hand and she said this, she said, for years, I thought that the gospel was a ladder that I had to climb. Until I found that it wasn't. You see, because the gospel and what we just read about, the crucifixion, the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was about a ladder. But it wasn't the one that you're going to try to climb. It was the one that he would descend to. That he would climb down the ladder into the depths of the depravity of this world. And he would usher in this kingdom of God message. And take on and absorb the wrath of God that we all deserved. So that why? We could ascend to him. And the ascension doesn't come because of anything we can do. But because of the Holy Spirit breathed into us and giving us the life that we have, now we get to ascend to the Lord. And when we ascend to the Lord, he looks at us with clean hands and pure hearts, not because of what you can do, but because of the death of Christ. Do you believe in Jesus and what he has done for you? That the death was the final, I mean, that was it. It is finished. And upon me believing, I've been pardoned. I am free. And now I'm alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord.